0: tony and josh from ggch of course trip fuller and Homebrewed christianity and a whole grip of others and you can use the promo code return of yhp all one word for 25 dollars off your ticket prices go up starting june 1st that link will be in the notes i hope to see a bunch of you guys there in october it was a serious highlight of last year for me If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. Quick announcement before we start the show today. I will be at Theology Beer Camp October 13th through 15th in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, along with other podcasters: The Bible for Normal People, New Evangelicals, A People's Theology, Rethinking Faith, Crackers and Grape Juice, and more, as well as speakers, Diana Butler Bass, Grace G Sung Kim, Adam Clark, Sarah Lane Ritchie, Brian McLaren. Aaron Simmons from the Kierkegaard episode, our own Myron Penner. Anyway, we're going to be at this very fun event. I'm going to be doing some live podcasting. We'll be having some game-type activities, Uh, and you can come. You can get 50 bucks off your registration with the coupon code YHP. Head to theologybeer.camp to get some more information and register if you want to come hang out in person. Look forward to seeing you there. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Jay Mendenwalt, I have been waiting to talk with you about the Enneagram for two and a half months now, since I saw you give a very research-heavy presentation at the Christian Association for Psychological Studies I was going through the catalog of, I don't know, 150 or some presentations total, and number one on the list to make sure I attended in real time was yours, which was called Does the Enneagram Live Up to Its Claims? Longtime listeners will understand why I wanted to talk about that. I am not shy about my Enneagram skepticism, but you've done actual legwork around this topic. And so I'm very excited to talk with you and not merely do my own kind of uh, biased, you know, whatever, lay uh, analysis. So we're going to we have real data here today. So thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I want to do a little bit of sort of introduction here. You have a master's in psychological sciences and you are about a year out from getting your PhD in social psychology at Baylor University. And for those who don't know, Baylor is a very good school for studying psych of religion. It's one of the top programs in America. Theologically, I think there's some distance. I think you're to my right, not all the way across the field, but there's some daylight. You do a lot of apologetics work. You call yourself in some forms the psych apologist, and you became a Christian through apologetics work. We obviously share Enneagram worries, but that doesn't really sound like me, you know, in terms of theologically. So, and I I know you've listened to at least a handful of You Have Permission episodes.
1: Yeah, I would say I'm a bit more conservative than you on some things often I look for places where I I can agree with people and just be very careful in how I do that and give people the benefit of the doubt. So it kind of makes me a little bit of a chameleon, uh, sometimes a little bit out of place, but... um.
0: Yeah, you know, I think that the combo of theology and psychology, I really resonate with that, by the way. And I think that that combination does make us both a little bit of anomalies and sort of puts us in between. Generally speaking, someone who is, strictly speaking, theologically-oriented or apologetics-oriented or something like that, they are going to assume that people's stated reasons, the thing they got from the text, the whatever, that this is—that's that's the real reason. That is, I believe what I believe for the reasons I'm telling you that I believe them. It comes from my theological reasoning or my exegesis of this passage or you know my views about this tradition of whatever. And then the the pure psychologist is going to be very skeptical of those answers, is going to go, well, I actually think the real reason you believe whatever you believe is like you're surrounded by these people. They believe this also. You have plausibility structures or you live under a sacred canopy for a sociological perspective, right? Or whatever. And then you and I are like, well, I think they're both at play and disentangling those things is hard and it takes a bunch of work but it's like the most interesting work there is right to untangle that particular mess of what are we unaware of and biased about and being influenced beyond our conscious awareness? What are we aware of when, when and how and why does our rational logical ability actually come into play? Not merely to sort of be our lawyer and back us up to ourselves and others for what we already wanted and didn't know we wanted, right? Like, untangling that mess that is like that's the good shit right there
1: yeah yeah i love it that's why i got into psychology is to understand kind of that process and the reasoning and the biases we have and i'm often hesitant to use the word biases because you know the heuristics are kind of like mental shortcuts and they save us so much time and energy and get us so many things that we can do that other species can't Um, but sometimes they mislead us and so we have to always be checking those things in our biases and making sure we're coming to the right conclusion. So that's kind of what I always do. And you're going to have one of the reference article on my website that I list over a hundred different cognitive biases that affect us. And most of them are unconscious. We don't know
0: that they're affecting us. So let's get into the Enneagram a little bit. I think most listeners know what the Enneagram is. If someone has not heard of it, give us a few sentences on the Enneagram.
1: So if you look at any of the Enneagram books, you know, Richard Rohr or, Ritzel and Hudson, they'll all say personality typology on them. But when I call it a personality system, people are critical of me. So I, I just want to make that clear is, you know, it's it is a personality type system and it does describe more about personality than say a Myers-Briggs, but as a personality scientist, that's that's not really all we consider personality. So as a personality sci- scientist, what we consider personality are all the things in the Enneagram. And so it really is It's just a, a more solidified or robust single system of personality that the Enneagram offers and a way to categorize people into different types but there's different levels Um, so there's the main types I guess that's a big thing to mention everyone has a type and there's only nine of them and that that is the essence and core of who you are and that is supposed to never change and so you have your one type but then you have a wing which is kind of a subtype but that can only be one of the neighboring types so if you're type one you can only have a nine or two wing Um, and then there's triads which are Divides the circle into three. And that is kind of essentially like a thinking sound, a way you process information or come to decisions. And then there's relationships between all these types as far as your growth and stress directions. So it's this pretty complex system, which is great to me if it's accurate, but it does, it makes a lot of very easily testable claims. Right. And that's one of the things that people often say who use it as that's a spiritual tool for spiritual development. And it's not scientific.
0: Yeah. There's a little bit of cake and eat it too going on. I get a lot of pushback because I have a lot of genuine personal friends who really like the Enneagram, people that I like and respect uh, people whose minds I respect. Right. But they do speak out of both sides of their mouth. When it comes to the Enneagram, they will say, ah, well, you're a number X And, or I'm a number X. And when I'm stressed, I go to this number. When I'm growing, I go to this number. I have this wing inherent in that is the idea. Yeah. Like you said, wings can only be the number on either side. Right. So you have two options. And then when I go, okay. And I ask more questions about like, how do we know this is true? It's like, well, it's not science. It's like a spiritual tool. And it's like, well, okay, but you did just make a bunch of empirical claims, or at least you, you described your experience based on empirical claims that the model makes that are testable. Right. And so you kind of, you can't be consistent and say both, this will tell you what your personality is like and how you will move in the world in a reliable way, such that if you are this number, you can expect these things. You can't say that. And well, it's not science. You can't test it. It's a spiritual tool. There's an
1: aspect, too, that there are criticisms of it um, theologically, uh, concerns at least more from you know evangelical Christians or conservatives about some of its origins and roots and um, mysticism around that. And there's some things in there. Claudio Naranjo, one of the developers of there, admitted that him and um, Oscar Caso made it up and says, okay, well, That doesn't mean it's false okay but it also doesn't it means it hasn't it's not this ancient system that's wasted the time and it also means that we should be skeptical of it from the get-go and and be willing to put it to the test if we know it had those false origins so not that it is wrong but that we should not just so readily accept it
0: and, and wonder whether it's too good to be true I I like your point that it doesn't really matter where it comes from. If it works, it works, but the mysticism stuff is interesting because yeah, like I think it was in your presentation. You played a YouTube clip of one of the co-founders just admitting that they made some of that shadowy past stuff. They made it up because they thought that in the seventies and eighties or whatever this time of whatever this time period was, that that would like enhance its appeal to people, uh, or the type of people they were trying to reach. So this is a marketing ploy, which does not itself mean that it's bullshit, but you know, it's worth noting that this is just on YouTube. Yeah. And you can look it up and find it pretty easily. And he, he actually
1: cites Oscar Wilde in doing that. And uh, he says, Oscar Wilde said that if you want an idea of yours to become famous, attribute it to a famous person. And so they're like, oh, well, okay, well, let's say it was ancient. And that was their kind of version of Um, famous person was ancient origins.
0: Yeah. So what are the stakes? Because a lot of people will say to me, Dan, why you got to be such a, why you got to poo-poo at the party? You know, people are using it. They find it helpful. Uh, This is the most common thing I hear from people is, well, you know what? People seem to really find it useful and it's just a tool. And if people find the tool useful, who am I To sort of get in the way of that, like, let's use it. And I do want to be clear, it's worth distinguishing here. If I have a client come in and say, I found the Enneagram really useful, I'd like to talk about it in our session, or if they hint at that or imply that, like, I will totally do that. Anything, when I'm with a client, anything that is helping them explore themselves, think through stuff, make connections. That is raw material that we can use for psychotherapy. And I'll ask the kind of questions I want to ask to get from the Enneagram to maybe something more concrete in their past or about their current mental or emotional processes. Right. Like that kind of stuff. Great. I will use it. But am I going to promote it on the podcast? Am I going to interview Enneagram book authors With my limited number of episodes per year, am I going to talk about it as if it is reliable? I'm not going to, for reasons that we'll get into here today. But that's an important distinction. But this thing of like, yeah, well, people find it useful. So who am I to to get in the way of that? What's your response? Like, what are the stakes here? I think
1: in some of those cases, it's probably some of our kind of cognitive mechanisms just making it seem useful. But in others, I think it really is really is useful. And so it's like, well, okay, is there is there any value in trying to critique something that people are finding useful? And I always come back to a couple different um, reasons why I think it's important to do. One is just simply so people have information. So if, if you want to use it or not, you know, at least go and make an informed decision. But the other part though, is that if we use a tool that is not, accurate and reliable, then that is likely preventing us from using something better. Right. With all the people that the Enneagram has helped or possibly helped, um, there are a lot of people who is harmed um, and a lot of them are unwilling to say anything um, because either they're embarrassed or people criticize them when they do, if they do have the courage to speak up. And I've seen this in a lot of different ways and since writing on it, uh, people have actually come out to me more and told me about some of these things. Uh, oh, wow! And when I first started getting into it, my wife had just come back from a conference and heard this woman saying how she's now questioning her marriage and she's not sure that um, she should stay in her marriage because of this the Enneagram and their their types are not compatible. And so we talked about that and was like, okay, well, that's probably an extreme example and sure. you know, not many people doing that, but since then I've heard of it causing breakups in a lot of relationships, important ones. And the worst one is that it was the primary cause, um, behind a 22 year old marriage coming to an end. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, uh, in a Christian today article, I interviewed someone for that one, uh, that uh, my advisor and I wrote about the Enneagram and so.
0: Yeah. You know, it's like if the option is Enneagram or nothing, Yeah. I might go Enneagram. Like if the choice is, are you going to use a flawed personality system to think about yourself more deeply? Think about your relationship with your partner more deeply spend 90 minutes on a Tuesday evening together, thinking through the specifics of your relationship instead of watching television. Okay. You know, like if you, like if you compare it to nothing, then most of the time, people will think, well, that was better that we did that than that we did nothing.
1: One of the people who I asked him about the the big five is sometimes called the NEO uh, or the five-factor model. Uh, the big five is by far the dominant theory of personality among scientists. Uh, the Hexaco is basically the, the big five with an extra dimension. What these ones do is they, they score people on dimensions and give you a score and a continuum they don't put you into a category of a type right. and so when i when i asked my friend about this it's like well, i've never heard of it uh, and so okay well you're not a scientist that's n- not surprising even though it's still fairly popular but it's hard when you have something that is more scientifically validated part of the reason why we can make good predictions with say the big five model is because it doesn't arbitrarily categorize people and so if i took the um you know big five factor of extroversion so you're you're high on extroversion or low which we often call introvert now if i score you and i can score everyone on that on a a scale from you know first percentile to 99th percentile i can predict based on your scores on that and so let's say I have someone on the 50th percentile, I can make predictions based on how they'll score on that. Now, if I just categorize you as high or low, I'm losing a lot of data in that. Right. And that's what the problem you get with the Enneagram and even something like the Myers-Briggs is that they're they're categorizing people. And so basically if you're in the middle, which is actually where most people are, is somewhere in the middle on all the factors, you know, it's not
0: gonna be as accurate for you. The point is good about like, oh, you're this number, you're one of these types, that is so much less granular than saying, like, if I look at my big five score, it's like, okay, I'm like a 75, 75th percentile extroversion. So that tells me I'm not like a 100, right? I'm not like in or out. I'm like pretty high. So most extroverted activities are going to appeal to me and a few aren't because I'm 75th percentile or most of the time, but not all the time. People could be very low on openness to experience, but they don't have to be the first percentile. They might be the 40th percentile. And they go, well, that's why I I sometimes like to try new restaurants and my husband never does. You know, But if it was just like, oh, you're either a new experience person or you're not, then you lose all that granularity.
1: We have such a strong tendency to categorize people and then stereotype them. And often- it doesn't lead to problems, but we've seen recently with everything on race and gender, like it, it does become a problem even when it's something small. And I think the Enneagram is kind of now a, a socially acceptable way to stereotype people. And that seems all right because it's, it's a small thing. But then when we hear people not getting hired for a job because they weren't the right Enneagram type number, even though the Enneagram has no predictive validity for job performance, now it starts to get concerning where um, people, you know, being kind of left out of groups that is problematic to me. And I think it's something that you know, if, if the Enneagram does continue to grow and become more popular and more widely used, I think we're going to see more and more of that happening.
0: So let's get into some of the nerdy stuff here. Uh, you have gone through all of the peer reviewed research. Give us a brief overview, like approximately how many studies have been done to sort of test the ability, the predictive ability, the reliability of the Enneagram.
1: There's probably about 150 studies total that have looked at the Enneagram. So empirically, there's probably, I guess maybe that mixes in some that are non-empirical. So some are just kind of theoretically saying, this is how I, I would okay. use unigram um, I haven't done an exact count, but a lot of those are thesis and dissertation projects that never made it to peer review. But there's definitely some quality issues with a lot of the work. There is only one that was clearly trying to disprove the Enneagram. Everyone else is more of, they thought it would work.
0: Yeah. Okay, so we're not going to do, we're not going to get too nerdy here for, you know, this is not a science podcast. This is not a statistical research podcast. There is a link in the show notes to some blog posts of yours that go into more nerdy depth for people who want to do that. But we're going to try and keep this as popular level as possible. But there are a couple different types of, of ways that we can measure this stuff that I do think that you and I will be able to sort of explain in layman's terms. So let's talk a little bit about, you You briefly mentioned these, but the types of things that we're going to be looking at that have been tested in these studies. So there's types, which is your number. There's wings, which is the uh, modifier of your number, which could be one number above or one number below. There are triads, which you mentioned. These are like, there are three of these triads. Three numbers are sort of connected to each other, and they're supposed to represent like uh, a more broad category of like the way you tend to see the world or whatever. There are type correlations. Uh, what what are type correlations?
1: Yeah, so that, that's something I've kind of proposed on my own separately based on Enneagram theory is that if two types are supposed to have certain relationships. And so a four can be a wing of a five. So a five can have a four wing or a six wing. And so there should be a higher correlation yep. among fours and fives and fives and six. than there are between say fives and ones who are right. connected in any way.
0: Makes sense. Okay. And then there is the growth or stress thing that we've talked about, which is like in some of the, some versions of the Enneagram, like, well, if you're seven, when you're growing, when you're doing well, you start acting like a four, or I don't remember the number. And mm. when you're not doing well, you start acting like a one and being perfectionist or whatever. So obviously I haven't done a whole lot of reading on my supposed, my purported type, which is usually comes out of seven, but I've gotten an eight. I've gotten a three as well, which I think we're going to get into that as well. The the sort of um, inter-rater reliability, but okay. So those are, and then in growth, in stress. So those are the types of things that we're looking at. So one of these is called internal reliability. What is internal reliability, and and what do we find?
1: Yeah. So this is this is probably the first and. In- go-to test for any psychological construct. So any new thing, if we're measuring IQ, we're measuring humility, we're measuring kindness, whatever it is, marital satisfaction, we're going to look at the scale that we're using. Does it have internal reliability? And that's basically, let's say we have 10 questions to measure type one in this case. Are those 10 questions Reasonably highly correlated. So, we, we wouldn't expect them to be perfectly correlated because each question is kind of getting at something a little bit different for the type ones, but we would expect reasonably high correlations. And so, we kind of have um, certain scores that we look to that we say, okay, this is showed that this is reliable and consistent if it's above this number. And that usually that number is 0.7. But if it's below that, you say, well, it's probably not very consistent. And so, people you aren't going to score in the same range on these questions over and over again.
0: Right. So just for instance, there are some, a number called Cronenbach's Alpha, which uh, shows sort of how consistent these items are with each other. And uh, usually you want that to be at least above a 0.7. 0.9 is fantastic. 0.8 is quite good. Just for reference, the My 27 Items Spiritual Abuse Scale because I have it in front of me, 0.95 for the whole thing. And each of the six subscales, so those would be roughly like the nine types or whatever, those are from 0.84 to 0.91. So this is, and I had a big study and there's, you know, there's some sort of nerdy reasons why those would be good. But basically like, yeah, these items hang together pretty well. The ones that made it into these things. And what you found was the numbers ranged, a couple did get up to 0.84 for some, but all the way down to 0.37, which is like very, very low. And basically, this is not valid at all. Uh, it's not internally reliable. It's not actually measuring the same thing that it says it's measuring.
1: Yeah. And and that's the thing is if you get, so say you have the uh, question for type fives, these questions for type five should all be reasonably highly correlated if they're not it means they're measuring more than one thing right um, and, and specifically even more than one thing that's not correlated so if i if i measure two things but those two things are correlated that will still hang together pretty high those values will be high but uh, if i'm getting really low numbers that means I'm, I'm measuring things that really don't have any correlation with each other at all very little
0: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about wings and type correlations, because those are basically the same mathematical situation, right? Like you, if I'm a seven, then my wing is only a six or an eight. And you said, look, since if that's the case, we should find that sixes and sevens would be more correlated than sixes and twos. What can you tell us about what the data says around wings and these type correlations?
1: So, there was one study that tested the wings kind of directly, and they tried to have some people arrange the types based on their descriptions around in a circle and see if they would get the arrangement. And they found that the, the wings were not placed by each other by their, their main type any more often than chance. And so, that's one way it was tested. That was the one article I said that was critical of the Enneagram. But another way to do this, which I've kind of just started looking at and want to do a meta analysis on, is to say, okay, I'm going to use type five again because that's where I come out most most commonly when I when I do an interview.
0: You would be a type five. You would say that like a such a five of you, Jay. Funny because I scored so the one that usually comes
1: up second though is type one, and so for me I look at it and say, okay, well, five describes me fairly well, not great. Well, type one describes me pretty well too. Think well, the reason why both of those describe me fairly well is because they have kind of core to them is a concern for kind of truth and hmm. figuring out reality and, and part of you know if we are more realists and we believe that what is good is true right or that truth and goodness are related then that's type one which is the reformer the perfectionist right and so for me those are linked and so my best enneagram number would be a five with a one one but those two aren't correlated or aren't connected at all on the Enneagram. And so they should have actually really low correlation. But in some early analysis I've done of the different correlations between studies that have tested correlations between type, they're actually two of the highest correlated numbers, five and one. So it's not just me, you know, it's other people who you know whatever their scores are on these types, those two seem to be pretty highly correlated. But not; they're not connected to growth and stress directions. They don't share a triad. They can't be wings, and so that would suggest that you know that's not really um, supporting the enneagram theory about how people actually are.
0: You're you're getting at some of what I think people do find helpful, right? You're you're talking about a kind of self knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. That is what probably the number one thing that people use personality systems for is to know themselves and then secondarily to know others in their lives, I would say. And like, we want people to know themselves like that. I want to be clear. Like I support any time. Oh, listener that you spend learning more about yourself. That is good. I mean, obviously we can get overindulgent or whatever, but it, you know, basically speaking like, yeah, know know thyself. Socrates said it. I agree with it. And I think that there are all kinds of ways you could talk about that theologically, you know, God created you, you are good in God's eyes, like get to know yourself. Uh, Also, it's really a part of many, many therapeutic modalities to understand our motivations when we are avoiding distress, when we are uh, living into our values, like, you know, mindfulness, awareness, know yourself. On our most recent patron exclusive episode, I talked to two Gen Zers, some Zoomers, and I asked them about Christianity, about deconstruction, about what they and their friends are thinking and talking about when it comes to faith, to church, uh, things like LGBTQ issues and science. I got uh, in touch with Grace and Sandeep through Josh Patterson, host of the Rethinking Faith podcast, actually now co host with Greg Ferrand of Rethinking Faith, and it was a really interesting conversation. It's been getting pretty cool feedback already on the Facebook group. The Facebook group is another one of the benefits you get from being a patron of this show. Patreon.com slash Dan Koch, five bucks a month, two exclusive episodes per month, and Facebook group membership. Also, if you're thinking about Theology Beer Camp, there is an even better discount code for patrons. But you got to become a patron to get access to that discount code. So if you are going to go to Theology Beer Camp, you can kind of pay for 10 months of your Patreon uh, donations or payments or whatever with an extra 50 bucks off. But I can't give that code out on the regular feed. It's just for patrons. Wow. Consumerism and capitalism have truly corrupted all of us. Anyways... Uh (laughs) hope you guys are enjoying this conversation about how the Enneagram doesn't really live up to the hype. Okay, back to my conversation with Jay. If this tool is essentially not much better than chance, or, you know, a couple psychologists who understand people pretty well, but are limited by their own biases can come up with something that Seems reasonably kind of true, you know, like okay, but we can do better than that. And we do have better tools, right? And, and that's uh, interesting to bring up is that people, it's using better tools or
1: psychologists coming up with different things. So, one of the things with the Enneagram is part of what it's telling people and information it's giving is that it's giving them things they're not aware of or don't know. And so, well, if you don't know, then how do you know the Enneagram's accurate? But there was actually a study in the 50s where a psychologist gave people personality tests, and then he gave some of them real personality feedback and some of them broad general feedback. So they're called Barnum statements after P.T. Barnum. Um, So it's just broad general statements that apply to basically everyone. So it's not that it's wrong. Right. But
0: it's just like, okay, this describes all people. It's not specific to you. It's not novel. Right.
1: Yeah. And so um, slightly higher percentage of people said that the Barnum statements so these general statements, they said that was their personalized personality feedback. And the other one was not because they knew it was one or the other. And they had to choose. And I think it's just it's more of a matter of it's not that the personality test was inaccurate the actual one, but it's it, it wasn't giving the people the stuff that they were interested in where this other one kind of was or it was more talking about things that people don't talk about as much. So it's you know kind of like statements like you know, I, I'm normally an outgoing person, but sometimes I'm shy and reserved. So some of these kind of double-barreled statements are yes. like, oh, well, I'm like that. and I, I, But we don't stop to think that other people have these same kind of internal struggles and things going on within them. And so they think it's personalized to
0: them when it's really not. Well, that's a good, like, good example of I'm normally outgoing, but sometimes I'm shy and reserved. Just plotting people on you know, a bell curve – I'm guessing that that statement is true because I know that, I know that extroversion is more common than introversion in the human population. So in order for that statement to be false, you would have to be what? 90th percentile extrovert probably to go, no, I really never need, I'm really never shy. That's maybe 10% of people. And to say, no, I'm not mostly outgoing. Maybe that's 20% of people on the introvert. You know, these are approximate, but like, so then let's just say 70% of people would identify with that statement. So that is not, that's saying, Hey, congratulations here. I've just described you. uh, If everyone's special, no one's special. Like you're, you're part of 70% of humanity or whatever, but it sounds, Hey, you just, how did you know I'm like that?
1: Yeah, and, and I would say percentages are even higher than that because with a lot of those things, they're, they're, they're called double-barreled statements in a lot of the Barnum Effect literature. Uh, and one from the, actually the original paper that looked at this is from Forer in 1949. And, and so one of them is, I am disciplined and self-controlled outside, but tend to be worrisome and insecure on the inside. Even the most disciplined and self-controlled or even narcissistic person is sometimes going to have doubts and insecurities.
0: Right. You, you have a great need for other people to like and admire you, right? Like most people, you have a tendency to be critical of yourself. That's a 90% item, right? So I think, and I don't know, that this is a lot of what's going on with horoscopes. That like mm-hmm. horoscopes are sufficiently broad that, you know, if if six out of eight statements you can pick up on, okay, you might say those other two are not right, but those six are sufficiently broad that they can apply to a lot of things and it doesn't really matter what month you were born in. It is phrased in such a way that there's something for everyone. You're going to find something for yourself in that description. Now that might still in some sense be something that you can use for self-discovery because maybe you'll, maybe you'll go further than simply the horoscope predicting your day. And you might choose that to think about Who you really are and why am I like that? And is that my mom kind of used to say, well, now you're doing therapy. I mean, now you're doing now you're doing self-knowledge. So these can be used as a springboard for genuine self-knowledge. But like, it's just not a good tool. It's a very, very blunt tool that essentially tells you nothing you didn't already know. Yeah if I take a step back, if I want
1: to convince you of something, it doesn't matter what it is. If I, if I wanted you to agree with me, theologically, if I wanted you to agree with me on the Enneagram, if I wanted you to agree with me about, you know, what's the best movie of the summer, you know, the first thing I would do is I would make a bunch of statements that you would agree with, right? right. And say a bunch of things. And so that gives me credibility as an expert and someone you can trust and believe. And I think the types have, there's a degree of credibility to them because I think you know, between the general statements that they make or Barnum statements, the double-barreled statements they make, and then also the, there is slight differences between the types. I think those things, I think people genuinely can find themselves in a type and, and usually one type better than some of the others. And so when they do that, and a lot of these statements are often described as eerily accurate um, but same with these barnum statements or forest statements and so that builds credibility with this test and with the system and i think that's what's going on and, and i and so even in my caps presentation i said you know there's there's something to the types there's some degree of kind of reliability there it's, it's not super high it's not great but there's there's something there but then the problem is every claim beyond that. And so that's where you get, here's how you grow to become healthy. Here's what you do when you're stressed or what you should avoid. Therefore, you know, here's your subtype or your wing. Here's how you think and process things. I think all of those claims after that, I think those are probably no more accurate than chance. And so if it works for some people, I I believe it, but a lot of people it's not going to work for, but now people are taking advice for something that's not them that doesn't describe them isn't going to help them, but they're taking this advice because they were accurately described in this by this type in this kind of eerily accurate way.
0: Yeah. And you know, it makes me think of, because astrology is, is having its, I don't know, some kind of a Renaissance among mm-hmm. at least lefty left-leaning folks. And a number of my friends are in that contingent, the best push, like I tend to be pretty relentlessly critical of astrology but and i try and be clear that the thing i'm most critical of is the day of the year in which you were born element of it i think there are some very small to moderate effects on what time of year you're born the peer reviewed research is pretty bad for astrology what i've heard people's point back, push back at is like no it's not about like star sign is less the thing that they like and what they like is the more jungian kind of the archetypal characters that come down through hundreds of years of astrological sort of pre-scientific reasoning. Like there are these kinds of characters in world literature, in religious traditions, and that these maybe have some basis in human psychology to which I would say, okay, now we're kind of talking about the Enneagram, right? So if it doesn't tell you well, you were born on this day, so you're this type. I mean, I think that's frankly just so silly. But if it's like, well, you could you could instantiate any of these sort of figures, the weeping mother, the guardian, the what I'm making this up, I don't know what they're called. Okay, and you could be anything from 1 to 9, right? But you don't have to be a 7 because you were born in August, right? Now we're doing a little better, but it's kind of like what you're talking about, where you give people enough options, they're going to find things that resonate with them. And that's all, that might be all well and good and harmless. But if you're doing that instead of something else that is accurate, then now we're getting into harm, possible harm or overconfidence in this thing. That is really not that much different than saying, which Lord of the Rings character are you? You know, like you can find, oh, I'm kind of feeling like Gimli today. All right. Well, that might tell you something, but like you wouldn't want your therapist using that. Like you wouldn't want your therapist doing a Lord of the Rings personality quiz uh, with you. Like you want to use something that has rigor behind it, that has predictive value to tell, like you were saying earlier, to tell you something you don't already know. That's a lot of what therapy is, is like psychoeducation. Here's something that you don't know as a lay person, but that psychologists have figured out. Let's work through it together in regular language and see if it can be of use to you.
1: I guess the one thing that came to mind is it's called the SOCA model, um, self-other knowledge assessment, I think, or awareness, maybe. I forget what the A stands for, but basically with some things we are better at rating ourselves than in other things. And so things that are more of the internal thoughts and feelings, things like that, we're better at rating ourselves than other observers are. So um, personality systems or theories or whatever can be helpful in bringing some awareness to areas that are more external oriented because they may be blind spots for us. But again, with anything, we have to be careful with to what degree we trust it because even good tests can sometimes kind of lead us astray. And it's helpful to have a therapist or someone who's trained to know what this is and what outcomes it may relate to
0: and what's not and how to use it well. And when we're not doing that, everyone thinks they're an expert. Like one of the things I'm being trained in right now in school is like, okay, someone comes in with this issue or you diagnose them with this disorder or whatever. Here's where you can look at sort of the meta analysis best understanding of how much evidence there is for that disorder to use this treatment intervention. But if I put the Enneagram up against some of these evidence-based interventions, it's going to do so poorly. And yet some people have tried to test if the Enneagram as a psychological intervention, as a tool for helping people with depression, anxiety, whatever else, low sense of self, you know, all these kinds of things. Uh, what what do we see when they test whether these things work as an intervention?
1: Yeah, So that, that's tough because there haven't really been any that have compared it to other methods. So it's been more of like, we did this retreat and we used the Enneagram and we did train on Enneagram and everyone seemed to have grown as a result of it. And they had positive feedback about the Enneagram.
0: Sure. But you went on a retreat for the weekend to work on yourself. Like, (laughs) right. And so there's, there's some evidence in
1: favor of it in that way, but that's the thing where as scientists, we want to know, is that really
0: Enneagram having the effect or is it something else? Well, and it's not even just compared to other ones. This is something that might've come up earlier, but we can put it in here what's known as inter-rater reliability in the statistic literature. You know, you, you want a situation where if you have 20 different CBT therapists that they are roughly going to administer it similarly, or like if you're trying to figure out if it works. And so for something like a personality type, you'd want the various versions of Enneagram tests to give people the same answer. If the Enneagram is a thing, then you'd think that taking any number of Enneagram uh, assessment tools would give you the same number. But that's not really what we find, right? People type themselves or can find their type. They can do a test. They
1: can type themselves by reading descriptions or they can have someone else type them. Um, And so some of the studies have looked at comparison between these different methods. And between the methods, it's not very high and between different scales.
0: Just all, as you get less and less careful and less and less accurate, it just becomes less and less useful and potentially harmful. Right. Like the, the number one thing that I have found helpful in Enneagram stuff is that it, identi- it it rightly called out for me, if indeed I am a seven, whatever, if a seven exists, is that I tend to avoid distressing feelings by going for peak experiences. That's what it tells me, the the explorer or the enthusiast, whatever it's called, right? So I tend to want to like get a milkshake or I want to like travel and tell myself that my life is good, all these kinds of things. But like if I look at acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a modality that I'm just starting to get trained in, experiential avoidance is one of the six main problems on that model, which is empirically grounded and very carefully thought out and tested and all this stuff, right? Experiential avoidance is something that everybody does. Now, maybe they avoid through different things, but like, how valuable was it to know, oh, I'm a seven? Like, I think I just needed to know that I have experiential avoidance. I avoid bad feelings through distracting myself with other things. I mean, I'd already gotten it in therapy, so I already knew that about myself from doing psychotherapy. Now, it's true that therapy is expensive, and we we need all kinds of people thinking about how can we help people for cheaper. <laughs> like, that's a real – that's an ongoing thing. And I wish that I thought the Enneagram was a good way to do that. I don't think it is. But I'm looking for things that might be because it's just prohibitively expensive for a lot of the population, and it will probably always be that way. Yeah. You know, traditional psychotherapy. So, you know, they're like, even the thing that was helpful for me, I got it in therapy. I would have got it in ACT if I had known about that at that time. And it's not like it's only sevens that do that. Like a lot of people do that.
1: Yeah. I think that the, one of the draws of the Enneagram is that it takes a bunch of things and kind of puts them into a single package together where you can't really get anything like that in a single place from any other source.
0: So there really is like a marketing elegance to, all right, it's these nine types, you can find yourself, it's a one-stop shop kind of a thing. What role do you think that plays in its popularity?
1: I mean, I think that's probably a huge part of it. People want scarcity, right? So if I'm selling something to you and it's rare, right, that's going to want people to want it more. But on the other hand, if I'm selling something to you and I say, hey, everyone's doing this, that's going to make you want it too, and so the enneagram has kind of this built in. It, it gives you a little bit of both. It's like, hey, everyone's doing this. Everyone fits on this. All people are doing it, but now here's your unique kind of type, right? And and that gives you that kind of I'm part of this group, but then there's that specificity, and then there's all there's that depth that you can keep going down into it, which makes you people feel I think more and more of an expert or more knowledge, or they're giving more rare, scarce information as they go down that rabbit hole.
0: Yeah. And at the risk of repeating myself, but just while we're talking about why people find it useful, I think it is also like, it's an excuse or a reason to spend a bunch of time being intentional about learning about yourself. You know, if we could separate out, like, I'd love to see, you know, double blind type studies or with control groups or whatever, where some people spend three hours investigating themselves through the Enneagram. Other people spend three hours through a program based on the big five. Other people spend three hours with like their local pastor. And, you know, it's just like a marriage class or a, you know, understanding yourself in light of God's uh, love class. You know, I bet you, you'll find differences But if you have it compared to people who did nothing for three hours, you're going to like the most difference will be between all three of those groups and the people who did nothing. And then I would think the big five people, there'd be a certain kind of self knowledge, you know, depending on what we're measuring. Right. But everybody would say that was a good use of my time. Everybody would say that helped me understand myself. My primary relationships better. Right. Like so in that sense. It's just, it's good. People are doing something intentional that is working on themselves. They're being, they're thinking a little harder than they normally do about these things. And so they find it useful, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I I think too, so sometimes I I have a tendency to focus on the negative or critical side, uh, partially because that's often what I'm asked to do. But I think there is a huge positive potential to it where it does lead people to be more self-reflective, but also more empathetic and understanding of others. And it really draws attention to the the fact that people think in different ways or they value different things, which I think is really important to do. And the Enneagram at least does that in theory. I'm, I'm not sure how well it does it in practice, but in theory, it does that really well. And it does kind of allow justification or reason why people can do some sort of self-exploration because sometimes they're either they have they're from a church or a background where people have been critical of that or they just never thought about it or you know it didn't seem fun but now the Enneagram has made it interesting to them so there's lots of potential benefits for it there and I I love the idea of what the Enneagram is supposed to do or or what people use it for I just I can't get over that part about where it, it does real, actual harm to people and Mm -hmm. has a lot of potential harm that can be done as it grows based on what we know uh, psychologically with all the literature on stereotype and self-fulfilling prophecy and on and on with the the different biases.
0: Yeah. I'm curious. This is like one of the, like maybe the most interesting question is why specifically evangelicals and ex or post evangelicals? Why is that the group like? Is if you ask people outside of those groups, nobody knows what the hell the Enneagram is. I'm curious what you think about that and if you have other opinions about why it's so big in particularly these subcultures.:
1: Yeah, so I, I think there's probably a lot going on there. I think part of it has to do with the development of it. So it was kind of brought to the U.S by so Neronjo taught Bob Ox was a Catholic Jesuit priest and he brought it and taught some other Jesuits um, one of which was Richard Rohr until he had a big influence another person that he taught who um, he ended up suing and losing was Helen Palmer and, and is kind of a new age kind of spiritual type person um, into like kind of. she was a psychic at the time and so I think it's been big in that community as well and so she was really influential in bringing it here as well and wrote early books on it so part of that is where it kind of who really made it popular in the U.S. The other part, I think, is that it makes spiritual claims or is claimed to be a spiritual tool. So people want to get their, their hearts in the right place. They want to grow spiritually. They want to yeah. get rid of sin. They want to grow closer to God. So there's that aspect to it. And then the other, I think, part of it is that it's, I think it's bigger than those communities. And so we've seen in some of these other countries, in, in Hindu and Muslim countries as well, where it's been popular. And actually, one of the claims is that it's a ancient Sufi Right. personality system which that's that's part of the thing that was made up but um, so at least outside of the u.s it, it's grown to other communities well and i think it sometimes it may, i think perhaps in the u.s it's more of a um who is dominant in the culture and that's just happens yeah. to be why we see it there <laughs> and and for me the only people i've talked to who haven't heard of it are psychologists Everyone else seems to have heard of it.
0: Uh, Yeah. But you are, I mean, you're Baylor, you're in, you know, Texas, like it's, you know, like I think if you were in Maine or something, you know, maybe people wouldn't know. I don't, maybe I'm wrong. Here's another one I'll throw at you. I don't know. This one's a little less comfortable, but I think worth considering evangelicals and to some degree post or ex-evangelicals, we can be quite gullible. Like, we weren't really trained, and maybe this is true of most people. I'm sure it's true of most people. But as a subculture, we weren't trained to sort of skeptically evaluate people coming through with ideas that already gelled well with our other ideas. I'm thinking of all the visiting preachers and end times people and purity culture people and this whole circuit of like, you know. Uh, traveling teachers and, and authors and stuff within evangelical subculture. It's like, once you get a pass, then pretty much we don't really criticize you. And we don't think that critically about what you're teaching. And that's why you get these massive movements of things like purity culture or left behind and the the, the end times stuff that are like everywhere and everybody agrees on them and they end up being totally false. And we look back and go, why the hell did everybody agree on that? And I, it feels a little bit to me like Enneagram is is doing some of that where it's like this weird consensus thing that I don't I can never quite understand where that consensus comes from. But once it's there, it benefits from that consensus stuff. Any thoughts on that? So when we do research, religious research, and
1: part of my thing is actually what my dissertation will be on is kind of uh, critical thinking and religiosity and emotions and kind of the blend of those. But often what we find, at least in the U.S., is atheists tend to be a little more analytical thinkers and a little higher IQ in the U S and other Western countries. Um, But then you have kind of the spiritual, but not religious group or the nuns actually tend to be a little lower on those than Christians. Again, this is population level and their small effects. And so it's hard to draw conclusions from, from a person, but I think there's an aspect of kind of that, what you're going on is people they're afraid of being gullible and because they were gullible in the past. And so they gravitate to something it also has to do, and I don't know if it's just the, the progressive side that you seem to be talking about, but then when it's, it's hard to convince someone that their personal experience is wrong. Hmm. And so I said, well, it worked for me or it described me so well, it's hard to convince them to follow the evidence um, and that there, there might be other explanations or that maybe they're uh, right, yeah. but it doesn't apply to everyone. So I think you see this with like the vaccine autism stuff. People say, well, my kid got a shot. And then they got autism right after and say, 100% believe you, but it may not have been the shot. Like it may have been just the timing coincidentally. And if you have tens of millions of people getting their shot, that's going to happen with some of them. And unfortunately, maybe your kid was one of those ones, even though they're not connected. So I think there's a lot of that going on. And it's probably a larger thing within US culture where we're just not always trained to think critically or think, of, I guess, think of alternate explanations and, and value that. And there's actually some scientific literature and research on um, counterintuitive thinking, or even um, actually some that I'm relying on for my dissertation. It's actually a line of research on pseudo profound bullshit. Pseudo
0: profound bullshit?
1: Yeah, there's just some really <laughs> interesting articles on that and who yeah. who is more willing to accept pseudo profound bullshit statements uh, and so that's kind of fun to read and, and look at um, and unfortunately some of that research can be a bit kind of sending towards people sure um, at least as groups because again even with a lot of the barnum effect stuff it's often phrased in terms of gullibility but it, it's it's not really that people are gullible so to speak but the Barnum statements really do describe people. So when someone right. says, yes, this is me, and it does describe them, that doesn't make them gullible. It's just that it's that small little error of saying this is me and not everyone else.
0: Well, in that sense, it's the marketing. It's the packaging right. of the – like the people who put it together were canny in their statement writing, right? So it's like the the horoscope writer <laughs> – like the horoscope writer at the newspaper or whatever – whatever it is that they genuinely think about the predictive value of the stars, they are certainly trained to write those things in such a way that the, the statements can be maximally applicable to as many people as possible. Right. So that is a, it's a, it's in the medium. It's in the, it's in the way these things are phrased.
1: Yeah, for sure. People you know, are good which at is,
0: their jobs. Yeah. They're good at their jobs. It that doesn't mean that you're an idiot for, for being taken in by it. like, they are professionals and they are good at it. And so you will find it plausible because you are a person with a human brain. So there you go. When people are skeptical of
1: things all the time, sometimes it has uh, negative effects on, on their relationships or yeah. even their, their thought processes. So it's not always good to question everything. And that's, that's who I am. I think that's kind of – I'm hesitant to use the word "called to do," but it just kind of fits with my personality and my what I enjoy. But I'm skeptical and critical of everything, and you know, I I don't always vocalize that. Towards people because I know it, it does put a strain on relationships. Even with the Enneagram stuff, like I, I don't bring it up unless someone asks me about it. The article, by the way, is called "Happy Believers and Sad, Sad Skeptics: mm. and The Affective Influences on culpability. Um So there, there is that aspect of it. A lot. It can be hard to be skeptical or, or to think critically about everything, and most people don't want to do that unless they have really good reason to do so. I mean, the Enneagram seems. Right off the bat to work for them or work for someone they know and trust. And so they they have no reason to to doubt it.
0: Yeah. I certainly resonate with that happy believers, sad skeptics thing. I am aware that my sort of intellectual humility commitment, my careful thinking, my skepticism, which I think contributes to being able to be a good researcher and a good interviewer, you know, it does have personal effects. It, it does reduce, I believe, my overall happiness it now because I have this platform and the research is like I'm contributing to science in some way like I get meaning from that I I'm in some sense maybe sacrificing some happiness for some meaning and that might be a good trade-off but just the skeptic yeah I mean that's real like that's I'm gonna just make a mental note that I need to look into that some more Um, I have one more question for you before we end up here which is just you know, maybe these. I know you're working on this, and other people are probably working on replacements for the enneagram in people's lives. But is there anything that exists now that someone who's like, okay, I'm pretty convinced by Jay and Dan. I think I I do want to know myself, but I'd like to know myself with a better tool. You know, where do you point people to in terms of like what's a what's an improvement?
1: Yeah. So there's uh, a few different tools that you could use for a few different things. I would say probably the the first place to look at, and the hard part is that you have to do a little searching around because if there's, you're not going to find it all in one place. But probably one of the the most predictive things we have in psychology for relationships and interacting with other people is the attachment literature. So doing a little bit of digging on your attachment style, what your um you can find surveys and things of that online, what your attachment style is. And a lot of that comes back to your parents and uh, how you attach to your parents as a child. Uh, but that translates pretty well to how we connect and attach with partners and friends and Um, other people and lies in that that can be really powerful for helping us understand how we interact with other people, but it's going to take a little bit of work to read and research on that or to say, okay, here's what this, this book or this article says, now let me think about what that means in my life or how that affects this relationship versus this relationship versus this relationship, because it's going to be different.
0: I did find like, so I found a psychology today, attachment style quiz. That's probably fairly accurate. And they actually have, a page of all kinds of tests so personality career health IQ relationships you know they have depression inventories mental health assessments a lot of these are free uh so i'm going to put a link to just those uh other tests in the in the show notes um as well as a link to that attachment style quiz but that's a good example uh, attachment style is being carefully and rigorously studied And it can yield very helpful insights about how you relate to especially romantic partners, but also other people like your parents and and other loved ones, right? So that's good. And then Big Five, too. So there'll be Big Five personality tests here on that psychology today.
1: The Big Five seems to have a little more predictive validity because it's got that extra category, which... You know, maybe just a kind of combination of some of the other factors, but it seems to go a little above and beyond there. It also has a little more of the emotion aspects to it, to the hexagos. So that might be a little bit better. But again, with that, it'll be, okay, here's my results. So this thing says that I am low in conscientiousness. What does that mean? And processing through that understanding what conscientiousness is and what it means to be low on that, or even sub facets of conscientiousness, because each of the big five or um, the six of the Hexaco is broken down depending on the scale used between three and six smaller traits. And and those can have different effects.
0: Well, I found a free test that looks pretty good. It's in English and Spanish for the Hexaco. So, you know, there we go. We've got some things, but I think if we've learned anything here today, it's that a truly like, well-packaged alternative to the Enneagram does not currently exist for the populations that the Enneagram is currently reaching. And so that's something that is maybe yet to come. And maybe you're going to be a part of that, Jay.
1: And that's the hard part is, when you look at some of the, and not to, to bash the Enneagram people or anything, but you can go to a conference or Enneagram, read a couple books, and um, you know you can start developing your own theories on the Enneagram and what it means to be certain types. And that's kind of what some of the people have done. If you want to do this in an um, intellectually responsible and humble way, you have to collect data. You have to test it. You have to run analysis. And you have to do this with multiple like thousands of people multiple times in slightly different ways right. um, before you can start making some of these claims.
0: Well, Jay, thank you so much, man, for your time. I really enjoyed this. I hope that I hope that people don't feel too much like we just can't have nice things, and that we're just party poopers. But I think people have found something useful here, and uh, yeah, it's this is the thorny one. But I really appreciate you having put in the legwork to read through these studies, to analyze them. Thanks for presenting that paper, such that we could uh, meet and we could have this conversation.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot. It was a joy talking to you.